Just before we get started with the show, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which these podcasts were produced and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and the Aboriginal elders who may be listening today. We would also like to acknowledge those of us with a lived experience of mental illness or suicide and the important role people play in supporting their loved ones and colleagues. Hello there. We've all been through a time of disruption and upheaval to our work and our working lives. As we move forward, it's important to be aware of and reflect on what leadership in workplace mental health and wellbeing can be during challenging times. I'm Mark Dean, and welcome to Leading Through Change. Some of our speakers in this series have talked about workplace strategies and methods directly. Others will reveal their strategies and approaches almost imperceptibly through stories and descriptions of their beliefs and experiences. On this episode of the show, I'm very pleased to present someone who falls into the latter category. The Honourable Justice Melissa Perry graduated from the University of Adelaide and later earned a PhD in Public International Law from Cambridge University. Her doctorate on state succession, boundaries and territorial regimes was awarded the prestigious York Prize. From 1992 to 2013, Melissa practised at the bar and was made Queen's Counsel for South Australia in 2004. In 2013, she was elevated to the Federal Court and was appointed Deputy President of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal in 2019. In addition to this, she served for many years as a mentor for the New South Wales Bar Association Junior Women's Mentoring Scheme and the Sydney University Women's Mentoring Program. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm absolutely delighted to be here and to uh, talk about a subject that's very dear to my heart. Well, we'll get straight into it then. Thank you. Uh, we've been talking a lot about mental health during this really interesting time of unprecedented change and uncertainty. And I know you've, you've had a lot of reflections about this uh, over the, the period we've been through this year, but also I guess reflecting a little bit more on life as well. So can you tell me a little bit about your, your thoughts? What's been showing up for you in the past six or eight months? Well, I think I should start by acknowledging that judges don't face the same uncertainties that others face in the general community in relation to job security and financial security. But we all work within different communities, even within our workplace, with others for whom job security is an issue and in which other uncertainties, such as the health and well-being of loved ones, may be very significant factors which potentially play on our mental health also and certainly on the way in which we treat others. But if I may, I'd like to talk about two different communities. One of them is more intimate and one of them is the broader community of litigants whom we serve. We'd love that. Thank you. Where would you like to start? Well, I think I want to start with my chambers because this to me is the beating heart of my workplace. Mm. I have a very close-knit team, but the remote technologies which we've had to adapt to using within the pandemic have in some ways made us more involved in each other's lives. 
so we would have had little incidental conversations, as we all do within the workplace. Now, of course, those occur in a more structured, regulated environment in the sense that we're connecting by Zoom. But I find that it's terribly important for us to be speaking at least twice a day and to see each other. And we're establishing some of our own traditions. So, for example, on Friday nights, we all have to put up very happy balloon backgrounds. Right. And otherwise, <laughs> we've started taking photographs. Bit of fun there. Exactly. Mm. And we put up photographs of things that we might have taken. We also felt that we needed an antidote to all of the negative news that there was, especially at the very beginning of COVID. There's been so much of it, hasn't there? Yes. Lots of people talking about how they haven't been able to put the news down and they know it's not going to make them feel good. That's so true. That's absolutely so Mm. true. And And you're speaking to a news junkie. So what we did was actually to build on an idea that came from you, Mark, Oh, goodness. So you have to bear responsibility for <laughs> I this. accidentally inspired you somewhere along the way. Oh, you have in many respects. But what we have is we what we call the Chambers Wall of Inspiration. And there's just the, the members of Chambers are the only ones there. Ten minutes a day is part of their job description and mine. We have to spend time looking on the internet for something that is cheerful or inspiring or touching or that makes us feel connected with other people. How lovely. So actually deliberately looking out for some good news. Exactly. Something going well. Well, it's amazing how even that simple act can help to change your mindset. And I think looking consciously for something that brings joy or inspiration helps you to cope with all the negative news that you're having as well and reminds you in a very, very important way about the many worthwhile things that there are still to celebrate. But I think that the environment of kindness that I feel fortunate to be a part of within my chambers and within my workplace is one that's generated by everybody who's a participant in it. It makes a very big difference to, I think, how well people work. Because if you feel nurtured and supported and encouraged and appreciated then the dedication you will apply to your work will be far greater than if you feel disenfranchised, ignored and overlooked. And I'm sure you're passing on as well those signs of respect that must have a positive impact on their mental health. I mean, you do work in in such a high-pressure, perfectionistic profession, don't you? Yes. And you must come across a lot of people who are, well, to put it bluntly, pretty stressed out a lot of the time. What can you tell us about that? Are any tools that you've used in particular to help put people at ease when they are feeling that way? That's a very important question. One of the things that I did at the bar is to be accessible to young people. So even a simple thing like leaving your door open can make you accessible. For a young person starting at the bar... It makes a big difference when someone who's very senior is accessible and asking after you and concerned about you and teaching you. I think it helps to build confidence and for people to know that if they do have an issue, they can come in and talk with you about it and that you may be able to draw on your own experience to help them to get through it or to refer them to somebody who can. And you benefit greatly yourself through the mentoring of others. 
So it's something that is naturally, I think, a part of the profession. It's not universal, but many people within the profession, male and female, consider it a very important part of what they do and to do it quite naturally. It's a collegiate environment and that's how it should be, collegiate and supportive. I want to acknowledge that judicial chambers must be a rather unique work environment, but I'd like to take a moment here to pull out some of Melissa's key messages as I think they are easily adaptable to any workplace. Melissa spoke of promoting positivity around the workplace and making Zoom meetings as fun as possible. We are undoubtedly in a time of prolonged uncertainty where negativity and pessimism are hard to avoid. Feeling happy and good about doing our work, even if our work days are spent in online meetings, can help promote connection between co-workers and strengthen a shared purpose. Similarly, the environment of kindness Melissa touched on could be easily achieved in any workplace. Small acts could result in staff feeling nurtured, supported and appreciated, leading to a further sense of connection and sense of purpose. All of this can act as protective factors for good mental health and well-being. Continuing my conversation with Melissa, she wanted to focus on her interactions with litigants and in particular, people before the court on immigration requests. They are under immense stress and often present with limited understanding of English or the court process. It's particularly important for the court to provide a respectful environment in which those who appear before us feel that they have been properly heard. It's hard to explain just how difficult that is because many of those individuals have suffered severe trauma, perhaps even torture. They may have severe mental health issues. I feel you have the capacity to give something which is a hearing and to endeavour to do all that you can in your power to enable the person who's appearing in front of you in those circumstances to feel they're a part of that process, that they understand at least to some degree what is going on and that they feel they're treated with respect. For some of these people, even their names have been taken away from them during this process. Their identities have essentially have been removed? Well, for their own protection in the refugee context, you mm. wouldn't name... You, ah, you, you yes, can't have yes. proceedings which name the individual. For somebody who is seeking asylum in Australia because they fear persecution or serious harm if returned to their country of origin... You place them at risk if their application for a protection visa is unsuccessful. Mm. So one of the practices that we've adopted is to refer to that person as Mr. Appellant or Mrs. Mm. Applicant. And so you explain that person, you respect them immediately. And I think that starts by just building up a tiny bit of trust. And because of that practice, I will then refer to everybody else in the courtroom occasionally counsel by name, but otherwise to refer to everybody as Madam Associate, uh, Madam Court by their role. So Mm. it's less alienating Mm. and to... It's very equalising, isn't it? Exactly. Everyone is there in their capacity as a person performing a role, even if they are a litigant. And so everyone feels they're being treated equally. Such an important factor that helps protect some of the more vulnerable people you'd come across. 
from feeling in some way disenfranchised or, or treated as lesser. It's incredibly important because for many of these people, the decision that you make decides the future of their life. Mm. Where will they live? Will they be separated from their family and friends? Will they go back to a country where they feel unsafe? So that process of according respect and making the person feel very, very active participant in the proceeding, in the process, is vitally important in order to ensure that there is confidence in what the court is doing and also as a contribution to their own mental health. Can you tell us a little bit about your your broader experiences with that? Is there anything that you found profound or particularly helpful to help people to feel that they do matter, that they are noticed and they do have uh, something important to say? It's very important, I think, at the outset to recognise the stress that litigants are under. The process is an unfamiliar one. It can be intimidating. The language of the law can be alienating, even to those for whom English is their first language. And possibly most importantly of all, the outcome which can be so important in their lives is uncertain. So COVID really adds an additional element into that mix of uncertainty and the necessity for hearings to occur remotely utilising this audiovisual technology almost certainly makes that experience more alienating. Mm. And I, I might just give you an example of that. I was struck very early on in the um, pandemic by an article that I read about one of the first experiences of a trial being heard in the UK on Skype. And this was a case involving a man in his 70s who was severely mentally and physically debilitated after suffering a stroke. And the Court of Protection was asked to determine a question of incredible importance to him and his family, whether his life support should be continued. Mm. So the feedback from the court's perspective and the perspective of the lawyers had actually been very positive. But when the daughter of the man concerned was interviewed, she had a very different perspective An article in the Law Society Gazette reported that the reduced level of formality, including things like noises from pets and Mm. the backdrops of people's homes, added to her distress. And she said, I think very poignantly, that I wanted my dad to have his day in court, not in someone's front room. So she also said that she felt both distance from the process while at the same time everyone was uncomfortably close on the screen, creating an unwanted intimacy. And I'm using her words because I think they were very eloquent. And she made the point finally that she could only be seen and her reactions could only be seen during the trial when she gave evidence. And this had Mm. an impact. Mm. So as a result of that, what we did was, among other things, we would always ask whether the litigants wanted to appear on camera. And I think they've just almost universally taken that up. And Mm. if you think about the physical courtroom, the client might be sitting either in the public gallery or next to their lawyer. Mm. They will be seen. The court will be able to see their reactions. I'm not saying that it it necessarily ultimately has an impact on justice as in the result of the case, but justice as they say in the time-honoured phrase, is not just about justice being done. It is absolutely fundamentally also about justice being seen to be done. Mm. And I think small steps like that, as we learn from people's experiences, can be incredibly important in making hearings of this kind 
procedurally fair. To bring up the same point I made earlier, the experiences Melissa is speaking about are relatively unique. We don't all work with litigants. Our jobs don't all involve matters that are literally life-changing for others. But we can learn from Melissa's approach to ensuring people feel seen and heard. For what she is really talking about is navigating the impacts of a changing working environment in a way that is cognizant of the additional strain and stress that it may place others under. In the rush to alter our workplaces to respond to lockdowns or a need for greater flexibility or inclusivity, we mustn't neglect what may be an essential requirement for many people, and that is that they be seen and heard. It's easy to imagine a worker who's invested a great deal of time and energy in a particular presentation. When they present to their team, they're faced with video windows offering no reliable eye contact over unstable internet connections and where children or pets may cause an interruption. It's also just as easy to imagine the negative impact this may have on them. What Melissa's experience shows us is that we need to be mindful that by changing the way we work and the environments we do it in, we're also changing the way people interact. How are we going to ensure people feel seen and heard? And what does that look like? Kindness, acceptance, appreciation and recognition go a long way, especially in challenging times. It can help to make us feel settled when other parts of our world may be unbalanced. In the last part of my conversation with Melissa, we focused on her own personal motivations. Can I talk about someone who's my personal hero? Can Love I ask that. my own yes. question? Yes, who is your hero? Well, I told you before we started that it was a surprise. I wanted to talk about Captain Sir Tom Moore. Right. The World War yeah. II veteran born in Yorkshire in 1920. Right, yeah. So at the tender age of 99, Captain Tom decided to walk 100 laps around his garden every day to raise money for healthcare workers fighting the coronavirus. Now, as many may know, his initial aim of raising £1,000 was quickly surpassed, as within a month of capturing the heart of a nation, and in fact many beyond, he had raised £32 million. So to me, what I love about Captain Tom, among many things, mm. is that no matter what age you are or how humble, no one has the right to write you off or devalue your capacity to contribute. And I think his message is particularly important right at the moment because many people are facing their businesses failing or losing or having lost their job and may well fear that they may not yet again be employed in the workplace. And these are very grave fears. Captain Tom, in a sense, he just gives us hope. You know, he's got this lovely, gentle, unassuming leadership, which just showed how positivity, how hope, how appreciation can really triumph even in very difficult times. I just love the title of his biography. It's just simply... Tomorrow will be a good day. Well, look, it may not be. It may well not be for many people. But eventually, we just have to have faith to keep hoping that it will be a good day. And that's what I love about his message, to really hold on to that faith and to try and generate that in the people around us. You talk about your father as being somewhat formative of 
um, you know, the person that you are, of course, but you, you, I've heard you refer to this template for a good life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. The reason, not long after he died, I was asked to give an oration in his honour because he was the first judge of Hellenic origin to be appointed to the Supreme Court in South Australia. And I called that oration a life well lived. He had a very rich life outside of the law. So I'm leaving aside all that he did in the law. Mm. He taught me really that the small and unique moments that make up the course of our lives are what we should really value. I mean, first and foremost, family. Sunday afternoons having a barbecue, mm. listening to the radio. It's um, a Sunday risotto, which he used to love to cook, stirred with a wooden spoon. Mm. It's sitting in the study with my mum having a sherry, which we were always wanted to mm. at the end of the day. These, as I said, small, unique moments are the stuff of life. This is ultimately what nurtures us and makes us, I think, happier people. The acquisition of things, my own personal view, is not something that brings happiness in the same way as relationships. And I did have cause to reflect on this, not just as a result of my father's death, but also when my marriage broke up and I had to redefine my direction and I felt like a ship without a rudder mm. and I re realised that what really brought me personally pleasure was my relationship with other people and in particular the capacity to be what you hoped was a positive influence in their lives. How incredibly thoughtful and generous and I also think you know that the evidence backs it up that you have this capacity to help people to maintain a certain level of good mental health and even good physical health and the research even shows to recover <laughs> more quickly from physical and mental health setbacks in life when you are providing that lovely, supportive, warm, yeah. kind, loving uh, friendship. And that is something that I think uh, as a leader, you, you've shared in abundance and continue to share. So I thank you so much for this conversation today. Living a balanced life as much as you can <laughs> while serving justice and so many other causes as well. <laughs> justice, Melissa Perry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an incredibly powerful and inspiring conversation. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. That was the Honourable Justice, Melissa Perry. Some of the real takeaway messages for me were the importance of supporting others in making those around us feel included and seen and as if they matter. Melissa has a strong focus on championing the little things in her life and drawing inspiration and energy from those unique moments that are truly important. Leading Through Change is a production of the Victorian Workplace Mental Wellbeing Collaboration including WorkSafe, Superfriend and VicHealth, who are committed to promoting leadership of positive workplace cultures. Please join me on the final episode of Leading Through Change for a special chat between AIA CEO Damien Mew and Superfriend CEO Margot Leiden. It promises to be an engaging and friendly exchange. I'm Mark Dean. Bye for now.